0: Escape the bustle of Cairo and explore the Upper Nile River in Egypt, where the relaxed pace lets you enjoy meeting the locals.
1: The villagers are the the true and wonderful Egyptians around the banks of the Nile.
0: Coming up, get insider advice on your options for cruising the Nile. When Pico Iyer set out to find paradise on Earth in South Asia, he found the unexpected is what intrigued him most.
2: Everything interesting in our lives is what we can't
0: understand. Siberia has long been a place of exile, Sophie Roberts searched far and wide for the pianos that European Russians had shipped there years ago. She learned, never take the piano tuners of Siberia for granted.
3: They never have a name. You never recognize their importance, but they're the the kind of unsung hero.
0: Looking for the lost pianos of Siberia? Cruising the Nile and finding paradise where you least expect it? It's where we're going in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. What Makes a Place Seem Like Paradise on Earth to You? Author Pico Iyer tells us what his travels to India and Sri Lanka showed him about finding paradise wherever you are. And Sophie Roberts tells us about her adventure searching for the lost pianos of Siberia. That's later in the hour ahead. Let's open today's Travel with Rick Steves with tips for admiring 5,000 years of civilization while cruising the Nile River in Egypt. Egypt. It's one-and-a-half times the size of Texas with about 100 million people. Its capital, Cairo, is the biggest city in Africa with 20 million people, even more. The country is essentially a big desert facing the Mediterranean with a lush green ribbon flowing north and south through it. And that ribbon is the fabled Nile, so fertile, so rich in history. And a popular way to visit Egypt is to cruise the Nile, we're joined now by Tarek Musa, and he runs a tour company called Egypt and Beyond, and he's going to give us some tips on hopping on a ship to cruise the Nile, one of the most exciting ways to explore Egypt. Tarek, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Tarek, I, I introduced um, Egypt by calling it a, a, like a big desert facing the Mediterranean with a green ribbon going north and south through it. Is that a fair description?
1: It's a fair description. We live only on about 7-8% of Egypt around the, uh, the Nile River Bank. And the rest is desert. And that's coming, starting from north, Alexandria, up to Aswan in the south. But the river Nile actually is running from Aswan to the to Alexandria south. That's a bit confusing, but yeah,
0: it is a little bit confusing. Upper
1: Egypt, and lower Egypt.
0: <laughs> but um, the the main thing is most people live on the river. How, out of the hundred million people in Egypt, how many do you think do not live within a twenty minute drive of the Nile River?
1: Egypt is expanding, and there are new cities being built. But I would say like 70-80% uh, of the Egyptian people live around the Nile. Yeah,
0: so that's quite, quite a dense and fertile and important river. And it really is in so many ways the essence of Egypt, and it was certainly that way through history. I know a big part of Egyptian history is the annual flooding of the Nile. In the old days, you'd be really good to the gods because every year the Nile flooded when it was supposed to because the gods were happy and you don't mess around when the gods are happy. You just keep doing the same thing and the Nile would flood and that would nourish the fields and the people would have food and they wouldn't starve. But flooding was something that wasn't that efficient and that wanted to be controlled. So isn't that one of the great benefits of building the Aswan Dam?
1: Yes, absolutely. Building the Aswan High Dam gave Egypt an opportunity to control the water floods and uh, irrigate plants around the Nile and now we have lots of industries going because of this around the Nile to you know the plantation of uh, banana, wheat all around the Nile being controlled and without many cities being sinking under the Nile. So it has been a great blessing for Egypt.
0: And from a tourism point of view, hey, the thing to do is to get on one of those classic old river boats and cruise the Nile. That's what I'd like to talk with you about because you're a tour organizer, and, and a big part of people's visits, I would think, is to see Cairo, to see the famous sites at Luxor, uh, where you've got the hidden tombs and the great temples, and then to hop on a river cruise. What are the options for people who want to cruise the river?
1: It's the best way actually to discover what we call Upper Egypt between Luxor and Aswan is to do a Nile cruise. You have options. You can do three nights from Luxor to Aswan or Aswan to Luxor. Or you can do four nights or you can do seven nights. The most popular Nile cruise for Americans is doing four nights Nile cruise. On day one, they on the cruise for Visiting Luxor sightseeing in day two, they finalize Luxor sightseeing and then start sailing from Luxor to Esna, the Esna lock. Remember, we've been going through the lock and then going on to Etfo, Komombo, continuing to Aswan. The whole thing takes four to five days, but it's amazing experience seeing the banks of the Nile, the green around you and behind the green is the desert. The whole distance is not huge. It's two hundred and twenty kilometers.
0: So that'd be about hundred and fifty miles.
1: About that. From
0: Luxor to Aswan. Correct. And, yeah, so there's Correct. you know, you, you, you take the train or you fly from Cairo to Luxor.
1: You fly the best forget about trains in Egypt is not the best option to do this. Okay. It's the best way is to fly, it's one hour each way. Mm-hmm. And then you are you do the cruise, cover all the Luxor to Aswan sightseeing every place there is secured on on the on the boat as well and as you know this is very important yeah. in Asia.
0: and then so you can you can do Cairo you can do Luxor then you can hop in the boat for 3 or 4 or 7 days and then when you get to Aswan way up by the Aswan dam at the well up but in the south yep. uh, from there you can take an extra day on the airplane and and just take a little hop down on Lake Nasser and see Abu Simbel the famous uh, temple that Correct. was relocated from the river bank way up higher because when they made the dam it would have been submerged, and now you have this big man-made lake, Lake Nasser, with the relocated one of the wonders of the ancient world. I would say Abu Simbel. But let's talk about the boat itself. In very rough terms, if two people are going to take a four-day cruise, how much would that cost from Luxor to Aswan, just for the for the boat ride and the the meals that come with it?
1: Okay, usually it's a full board on the on the boat. And it is uh, all sightseeing are included. You're looking at, at around uh, $400 a night. That's including the sightseeing and uh, all transportation and the guiding. And we do even on the boat while usually it's group touring. There are Nile cruises go from about $200 a night to $1,200 US dollars a night to the top luxury ones.
0: That would be per person then. 200 to 400 dollars a night depending on how fancy your package is per
1: per, per person and it varies yeah. and you've got to be careful a four star in Egypt is not like what it is four star in USA it'll be less okay so you've got to be careful to choose the right Nile cruise was a good brand name or through a recommended local supplier because the last thing you need to happen to you on a Nile cruise is to get sick from the hygiene or bad food, right? So you've got to do it in a style on the Nile with a a good brand name, mm-hmm. or a trusted uh, resource to you to have a, a memorable trip on the Nile.
0: Okay, and if you're a backpacker with a stomach of iron and you don't need a good bed and you don't care if you get sick, what's the cheapest way you can take a boat from Luxor to Aswan?
1: I think there are still feluccas like there are about hundred dollars felucca for full board that per night. Between Luxor and Aswan, they sleep on board, and uh, but that doesn't have private facilities right. and all of this. So, I mean,
0: there are there are other options, but most Americans want to spend there it.
1: Are, at least there, there are there are options for backpackers. They will enjoy it. They will enjoy it. They it, will it, have a wonderful time in there.
0: We're talking about cruising the Nile with Tarek Musa, who joins us from his home in Cairo, where he runs Egypt and Beyond Travel. They specialize in tours of Egypt, the Middle East, and Morocco. Tarek assisted me when we filmed my recent Rick Steves' Egypt TV special. His website is egyptandbeyondtravel.com. Hey, Tarek, we were talking about how beautiful it is, and you've done it many, many times, and um, I've done it twice, and you're right. You're just in a slow-motion reality show called Egypt, and I remember just beautiful hours, late in the day when the sun's going down and and the palm trees and the minarets are silhouetted against the sky, and the children are down on the riverbank playing and the oxen are just kind of hanging out lazy in the fields. <laughs> and then a little village comes by, and, and it's like you just get a little peek at all of this time-warp traditional Egyptian life. Describe for you what you see. Paint the picture for us as you're on the deck and what you enjoy watching as you glide almost secretly down the river.
1: Being on the river, like, it's an amazing experience seeing the banks of the Nile around you. And remember when we stopped at one of the stops in Luxor and we went to the little house which has cows in it and, uh, you know, the bread they were putting on the, on the sun, being cooked by the sun. We met these local villagers. It's one of the amazing experiences. You see the true Egyptian people in these sites, the people like not the city people like this is the, the villagers are the the true and wonderful Egyptians around the banks of the Nile. And while you are on the banks of the Nile, see the sunrise and the sunset and also the temples of, around the banks of the Nile, Edfo Temple, Esna Temple, and Kumombo until you get to Aswan, the Philae Temple. It's a wonderful experience. Like, you see how huge the Nile is. It's bigger than whatever you think. Until you are on the Nile, you will not imagine
0: how big it is. For me, one of the most romantic things to do Is not on the big boat, but when you're in Luxor or when you're in Aswan, you can take a felucca ride, and that's the traditional tiny sailboat. And uh, a lot of people earn their living with a with a little traditional sailboat, taking tourists out for just a romantic sunset sail around the the Nile. What's your advice for a felucca ride when you're traveling?
1: A felucca ride is a must on each itinerary and every itinerary to Egypt. And actually, clients, many many clients consider it. A highlight of the trip, and because you can do sunrise on it or sunset, but sunset is uh, more romantic. People enjoy it better.
0: People seem to come out. All the colors get warm, and you're just alone with the under that wind weathered uh, sail, that old fashioned sail, and your strong boatman is either oaring or or navigating the boat for you, and you're just sitting there like some medieval aristocrat on your little perch enjoying the view and it's quite an amazing experience. You
1: feel like a king. You do
0: feel like a king. You really do. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined today by Tarek Moussa. He's on the line from Cairo. We're sailing the Nile. Tarek owns and runs a tour company called Egypt and Beyond. The website is egyptandbeyondtravel.com. Tarek, perhaps the most exciting moment for me was before we got to the locks, all of a sudden, it was like we were attacked by uh, little merchants in fast boats describe what happened
1: it's uh, it looks in the beginning a bit scary but they are uh, tradesmen they're trying to sell you some uh, dresses galabeya I you know the long dress for women or men and they try to send you like uh, sell you things like this and they throw it at you from the river to the boat about 2 3 floors and if you like it, you check it out. And then if you like it, they tell you how much. And you, you put the money in a plastic bag and throw it at them. And guess what? Sometimes you miss it. And it goes into the, <laughs> the money, goes into
0: it's, it's a <laughs> the river
1: Nile. And they have to, <laughs> they have to, they manage to get it somehow. They are very good swimmers. But it's amazing and a good, fun experience.
0: I've seen it twice and it is just it's unreal, and you just think those guys are working hard, and they're quite talented to move their, maneuver their boats, and, and the cruise ships seem to allow it because, hey, it's an entertaining moment and a very sleepy ride. Tarek, thank you so much for giving us a little sense of what it's like to cruise the Nile.
1: Thank you, Rick, for having me.
0: Tarek tells us where you can safely swim in the Nile in a short extra from today's interview. It's at ricksteves.com slash radio. Sophie Roberts turned shopping for a piano into an adventure in Siberia. That's in just a bit. But first, Pico Iyer takes us to an unlikely paradise, or two. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Paradise on Earth. That's what a lot of travelers seek. But to actually find it requires traveling within as well as without. For 50 years, Pico Iyer has been letting us stow away with him through his books as he ventures to distant lands, both within and without. In his latest book, The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise, Pico shares his quest for paradise on Earth in places as far-flung as Iran and India, Kashmir, Sri Lanka, the Australian bush, and mountainside temples in Japan. And he shares a perspective that might help us recognize paradise (laughs) wherever we are. Pico joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves from Kyoto in Japan. Pico, thanks for being with us. So happy to talk to you again, Rick. You know, I know you well enough, Pico, that you don't just write a book uh, to entertain. Like the traveler's guru, you have more to offer. Tell us what you mean by the name of your book, The Half-Known Life, and why you wrote it. It comes from
2: my sense that, especially when I was a kid, but even now, I'm often a know-it-all. I'll sit at home, I'll pontificate upon human realities and universal values, and then I'll get off the plane in North Korea, and nothing, I say, begins to apply to that. The world is much more various than we imagine, and it's much more interesting than our ideas. And so the half-known life refers in part to the fact that everything interesting in our lives is what we can't understand. What's bigger than us? And that's what I want to explore, whether I'm sitting at home or whether I'm traveling across the globe.
0: And you've done that vividly in your book, you know, and there's a lot of places you visit in the book, but I'd like to take this few minutes we have together and delve into South Asia, India, Sri Lanka, head up north to Kashmir to learn more about your thoughts, your quest for paradise on Earth, and then how or perhaps why these places, you know, so romanticized in our minds as paradises, all have something very powerful in common, and that, sadly, is war. So, let's go to India. You know, when it comes to paradise, India really is a place that's sort of infatuated with paradise. Uh, Where would we go in India to find a billion Hindus' interest in paradise?
2: (laughs) Well, I think the epicenter of Hindu India, as you know, is the holy city of Varanasi, and although I don't know what to do with the power and magnetism of that place, I'm pulled there again and again mm. because it has such charisma. And I, I remember one time I was standing along the Holy River, Ganges there, looking at this scene of great confusion and dead bodies floating past and flames on both sides of me consigning corpses to ash And I just didn't know what to do with it, even though I'm of Indian descent and 100% Hindu on paper. And suddenly I heard two people call my name. One, they were both Tibetan Buddhist monks, one an older Tibetan and one a much younger American who is the first Westerner in history to be named the head of a Tibetan Buddhist temple by the Dalai Lama. And my American friend, whom I'd last seen on Fifth Avenue in New York City, looked at the same chaos. He said, isn't this wonderful? This is the reality. We Ah. have to embrace. This is birth and death and everything in between. This is what we have to celebrate. And it was so humbling to me that somebody from another tradition could see the same chaos that freaked me out and realize this is where we had to find paradise, in the middle of real life.
0: Pico, that's a line that I actually jotted down from your book. Let me read it to you and tell me if I'm on target here. You wrote, Varanasi, it's a compendium of all the world's pleasures and confusions the churning current of Varanasi threw everything and its opposite together and declared all of it holy. Whoa!
2: <laughs> you know, I'm often, especially when I'm traveling, I'm inclined to say, this place is sacred and this is profane. Here in Kyoto, I want to go to the temple. I don't want to go to the Seven Eleven. And yet, if I talk to a wise local, they will say, "Well, the seven eleven is just as suffused with grace and kindness and the things you're looking for as the temple don't make these distinctions; they exist in your head,
0: and the world is much more complex It's so hard to explain india it's it's a weird thing I, I make my living explaining Ireland and Spain and <laughs> Denmark, but my favorite country is India, and to be honest, I don't even like talking about it because it's exhausting to try to explain to people." The chaotic magic of of India, the compost pile of life and love and, and commotion and people. When it comes to love, the tonnage of love in India is amazing. We're still in Varanasi. Take us down the, the muddy lane so dense with people. It's a human traffic jam. Uh, each person is like a wild fantasy come true. Take us down that lane until we get to the river, the Holy River.
2: Yes, I'm I'm smiling as I I listen to you, um, Rick, because India is the the home of the inexplicable. Everything you see walking down the street, you can't begin to explain away. So in Varanasi, the lanes are very small. As you're walking along, there's a cow walking on one side, there's a little boy in an ill-lit shrine behind a flickering candle on the other. Suddenly there's a roar of delight and people run past you carrying a dead body on a stretcher. Their mother, perhaps whom they're delightedly committing to the flames in the holy city, which will allow her to be liberated from the cycle Mm. of rebirth. There are people there are mosques there are churches every great religion is represented there there are naked ascetics walking around smeared in ash mm. so as you said love terror it's all happening within a few square feet
0: and there. then before you get to the river there's there's a like a plateau a little high ground and they have got fires up there and these are funeral pyres with a view of the ganges and there's crackling and the sound of bodies crumbling with the wood in the fire as the flames devour some stranger, and then you imagined it being a loved one. I remember being there, and I I can still see the bony feet sticking out of the fire like the tip of a log that's too long for the fireplace. And to go there, you realize what a beautiful place that is for Hindus and what a freaky place it is for a tourist.
2: Yes. And what a freaky place it is, even for a Hindu who is a tourist like myself. And people poking at the bones and ashes with hose and, and also just in such a state of exaltation about what to us is such a shocking sight. And what I always remember is when I walk along the Holy River at night, because it's such a kind of penumbral, ill-lit city, there's very little to see except the flames on both sides of you. So mm. it's like a kind of hallucination or some psychedelic dream. It gets into your head and you just remember through the dark these flames, which is a good lesson because none of us is going to last forever. And the great monks in every tradition remind us the more we think about death, the more we'll appreciate life. So mm. sometimes I'm, I'm almost grateful to be reminded I am going to be one of those bodies at some time. So let me make the most of right mm. now.
0: And there's different faiths have the same kind of exercise. That's, that's so interesting the more you delve into that. And then, of course, the lane is leading to the Holy River. And uh, Hindus believe that they'll hike across India in order to be cremated there and worship in the river before they say goodbye. And uh, the scene at the river is something to behold. And it's just, it's a vivid experience.
2: Very vivid. And when I was there the first time, it was in midwinter, which meant there's this huge fog... And there's a little sandy bank on the other side of the river. And you don't really know if you're dreaming this or actually experiencing it. It's it's spooky. The characters look like apparitions or dream figures or Ah. ghosts in the middle of this. Uh, And uh, as I say, it's not a comforting place to be, but I recommend all my friends to go there because it's unique and they will never forget it.
0: Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves right now is author Pico Iyer. Pico examined some of the world's most potent holy sites in his book The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise. You can find links to Pico's work in the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio and you can learn more about Pico from his website, picoirejourneys.com. Iyer is spelled I-Y-E-R. And Pico, when we rave about India and we just love being there, as I mentioned, these paradises also have that dark civil unrest or war backdrop. And in India... Uh, We've got the reality of Hindu nationalism, which is is, uh, as ugly as Christian nationalism, but with fewer law and order limits. There is that ugly side to the the paradise of of the Indian culture.
2: And I think there's always some kind of political chaos going on in India anytime. Mm -hmm. But I think when I travel, I try to ignore the constantly changing politics to see the character of the place behind it which doesn't change so much. So what I love about India is even though there are shopping malls and McDonald's and lots of traffic now, I think nothing's ever going to change India. The India 50 years from now is the same India that existed 200 years ago.
0: I guess I'm just selfishly thankful for that because I love the thought that I can go back to Varanasi and experience that. Hey, if you or I were a big shot, a Mughal in India, and we wanted to get a relief from the sun and the intensity of all, we would go up north to Kashmir, wouldn't we?
2: We would, yes. For, for centuries.
0: Yeah. It's an amazing place. Kashmir is its the only majority Muslim state in the mostly Hindu India. And it, to me, is paradise in the foothills of the Himalayas or whatever it is. its a, a lot of people claim the Garden of Eden was actually located up there. What's your take on Kashmir and Shangri-La?
2: It's so idyllic in places. I'm sure you've done this, Rick, but I was staying on a houseboat on Dal Lake in the capital of Kashmir, Srinagar. And when I looked out my window, there was nothing but a lotus pond. Absolute silence except for the whirring of Kingfisher's wings. People would paddle past and little boats selling aromatic spices and beautiful carved boxes. I really thought this was as peaceful and heavenly as things could get. But of course, as you were saying, ten minutes across the water in the city itself... 600,000 soldiers trying to keep an uneasy peace because both India and Pakistan have claimed it for 70 years. Tanks, army encampments, barbed wire. And so in some ways, it's a tourist paradise as long as you neglect the reality for the people living there, which has been a very, very stressful one.
0: It's a heartbreaking one when, you, when you've when you had a chance to know the people of Kashmir to think what they're going through and how seemingly intractable their tension is in, in that regard. Pico, one of my great regrets in my travel story is I got to Kashmir and I just didn't have the energy or the ability to go up to Ladakh. But, what, just 100 miles or so further north, further into this mystical sort of Himalayan wonderland, is Ladakh from Kashmir. And it is, I know, a place near and dear to your heart. Tell us about Ladakh.
2: Well, I really hope you can get there sometime, Rick, because nowadays it's a one-hour easy flight from Delhi. And it's probably the best preserved and therefore most magical and pristine of the great Himalayan places. It's like Tibet if nobody had ever come to Tibet in some ways. You land at about 10,000 feet. It's the main town of Leh is a small cluster of whitewashed houses with a market in the middle that has been serving Silk Road travelers for centuries. And then when you drive out of the town, within about 10 minutes, you're in absolute nothingness, this kind of lunar wilderness, surrounded by mountains, and halfway up the mountains are these magical big temples constructed almost impossibly on top of a ridge or halfway down a cliff, like the Potala Palace in Lhasa, Tibet, but even more so, and with a very living Tibetan culture and a living Tibetan agriculture all around it.
0: When we think about Ladakh, I think about the Dalai Lama, and I think uh, how important the Dalai Lama is has been in your life and, and your remarkable relationship with that spiritual leader. Tell us about the Dalai Lama and what impact he's had on your travels.
2: Well, you're absolutely right, Rick. Because he's been exiled from his own country, Tibet, for 64 years, he actually does go to Ladakh every year for most of August because that is like being back home. And I've been very lucky to know him for 48 years uh, travel with him often. Every time he comes to Japan, my wife and I spend pretty much every day of his, every minute of his working day right next to him. And he's an exemplary traveler because I think wherever he goes, he's traveling not to teach, but to listen. And wherever he, when he suddenly will arrive in Belfast or Jerusalem, he wants to find out about this place, to learn about them and to see what he can bring back to his own people and community. From them, I notice every morning when we travel with him, I step into his hotel room at 8.30 and there's a telescope there pointed outside the window. The Dalai Lama remembers wherever he travels on earth, he's going to be able to see the heavens from a different angle. And he never takes that travel for granted because before him, no Dalai Lama in history had ever been able to leave Asia. So I think I've learned a lot about how to travel from his endlessly curious, wide-eyed and appreciative eyes.
0: Pico Iyer is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves, and he's the author of The half known Life in Search of Paradise. Pico's written more than a dozen books about his adventures and observations in the world, and his TED Talks have been viewed more than 11 million times. Pico lists his upcoming speaking engagements and recent articles he's written on his website, picoiyerjourneys.com. Let's go to the far side of the uh, Indian subcontinent, and uh, take a little boat ride and go to Sri Lanka, the island just to the south of India, as a paradise, as a place that people dream of paradise. What's your take on that island, uh, formerly known as Ceylon, right, when it was part of Britain?
2: Yes, and I think Sri Lanka has had the same problem historically as Kashmir, which is precisely that it's paradise, and so everybody wants a piece of it. I know in Sri Lanka the, the Portuguese came in, and then the Dutch came in, and then the British came in, and now millions of us tourists just want to get a little scrap of Eden to take back home which makes for a very difficult situation. Of course, there's been a difficult war there too between um, the majority Sinhalese and and the Tamils. But even beyond that, it's a hard thing for a place like Sri Lanka to know that everybody in the rest of the world is looking at it with greedy or avaricious eyes.
0: They're sort of a a victim of their own fertility because they have these wonderful tea plantations there and that attracted the English, I guess, who love their tea and uh, the Sinhalese who live there didn't uh, work as cheaply as the people from South India, the Tamils, so the uh, English imported Tamils to do the tea-picking, right? Yes,
2: exactly. And I think through history, it was also associated with rubies. It was called the Island of Gems. Everybody from Marco Polo onwards imagined it was this treasure house of Mm. of jewels and and therefore irresistible to people. And
0: then when uh, the uh, English got tired of it, they left, and what they left was a divided society with a lower-class Tamil group and they've had a tragic civil war and my memories of, of Sri Lanka are very paradisical. I mean wild fruits, thatched cabins on the beach, body surfing, mountains blanketed by idyllic tea plantations but they've had a tough time.
2: They've had a very tough time. And, and what happened was, as soon as the British left, the majority of Sinhalese took over, made their language the official language, rendering the Tamil people more or less illiterate, literally unable to speak the language. The Tamils formed the Tamil Tigers, rose up in revolts, and then we saw mm-hmm. for maybe 30 years a quite violent civil war, which now has subsided happily.
0: Talk about buzzkill. Every time we build up a paradise, we realize there's some deep-seated problems that they're dealing with, just like all the places that we don't think that are paradise. There must be a lesson here overall. Have you given much thought to why so many of these paradises actually disappoint when we get there? What's the, what's the positive takeaway?
2: Something you said earlier in our talk, Rick, I think is the perfect explanation, which is paradise and humans (laughs) probably don't go together. Humans are mortal. We can't create something perfect. And I think in some ways, finding paradise has to do more with accepting imperfection than looking for a perfection that we'll never find. I think it has not to do so much with looking for answers to the world, but living with delight in answerlessness, in the half-known space, in the fact that we'll never be on top of the world, and that's the beauty of it.
0: And maybe finding paradise has something to do with understanding that we have a creator, and if if you do understand that or if you do believe in that, that means we're all children of that creator, children of that God, and when we travel, we get to know the family. For you and for me, I think the, the closest places to paradise are when we connect with other people in the honest Crazy, chaotic commotion—the conviviality of this beautiful life we've been blessed with. Exactly. All right. Hey, well, that's <laughs> that's the search for paradise. Pico Iyer, thanks for joining us, and as always, good travels.
2: Thank you, Rick.
0: Pico Iyer pulls together life lessons from nearly fifty years of roaming the world, sometimes to places others fear to tread, in his book *The Half-Known Life: In Search of Paradise*. You can also listen to podcasts of Pico's earlier visits with us from our show archives. That's at ricksteves.com slash radio. Russian royals sent European culture to Siberia by shipping pianos to the most far-flung places. A few years ago, Sophie Roberts went searching for them. She tells us what she found and why she did it next on Travel with Rick Steves. Siberia has a reputation as a vast, cold, often bleak terrain with an often tragic history just beneath the surface. But Sophie Roberts' mission to search for the grand pianos that were shipped to remote corners of Siberia centuries ago gave her a chance to see a more intimate side of the Russian interior and its Far East. She describes her journey about searching for a fitting piano to take care of a promising musician in Mongolia in her book, The Lost Pianos of Siberia. Sophie, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks, Rick. It's a pleasure to be on the show.
0: Siberia is this vast land, what, 20% of the, the land on the whole planet, and uh, it's, it's sort of a, an area where you don't cross a border and it says you're in Siberia. It's just this vast eastern hinterland of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. It's got a nickname as the prison without a roof, a place of exile and banishment. Talk just a minute before we get into pianos about Siberia as this eastern extension of both Tsarist Russia and uh, the Soviet Union.
3: Yes, indeed. It's a very loose description. Um, Chekhov said it best when he was there in the 1890s, and he talked about it beginning somewhere in Ekaterinburg, which is a city in the Ural Mountains, and ending, this is a wonderful phrase, goodness knows where. I took that to be Kamchatka, right out into the Pacific. It's huge. It's vast. It was this great prison without a roof. 1801 to 1917, we're talking about a million subjects banished to Siberia under the Tsarist Penal exile system and then the gulag system from 1929 to 53 we're talking about 2.7 million forced laborers dying in the Soviet gulag unreliable numbers unthinkable numbers you you can't put a face or a word to describe how unfathomable that really is but when I started to look for pianos And I started to search for the human stories in those numbers. I discovered something else.
0: What is music and what do piano tuners and what do great pianos have to do with this vast gulag zone of the czarist Russia and the Soviet Union?
3: Well, it was very interesting because what happened was under Catherine the Great, it began with her and it picked up pace into the 19th century, is an incredible piano mania in European Russia. So in St. Petersburg and Moscow, they couldn't make pianos quick enough. When Franz Liszt comes to play in 1842 in St. Petersburg, it's described like it's a modern-day rock concert. You know, people are grabbing at Liszt's hair, they're picking up the cherry pips that he's spitting from his mouth to wear them as amulets. So there's this fever for pianos. In One of the, uh, the 19th century critics talks about how in a block of 100 apartments, 93 would have pianos. The piano tuners couldn't satisfy demand fast enough. And what (laughs) also happened was these instruments started to move across those Urals into Siberia with governors, with exiles, with mavericks, with misfits, dragging them on sledges. We're talking about a time before the railway
0: Sophie, it's interesting that it's hard today. For, for many people, a piano is just, what am I going to do with this big thing? Because, you know, we've got everything so electronic and at our fingertips and streaming. But back in the middle of the 1800s, there was no recorded music. People had a hunger for culture, and there wasn't a symphony or an orchestra within a five-day horse ride. Explain the importance of the piano back then that we might have a hard time appreciating today.
3: But I think to understand the context, you're in, first of all, an incredibly severe climate, a very lonely place. You're among people that haven't all chosen to be there, the exiles that were coming in. You wanted to hold on to something from your past. You wanted to hold on to something that represented your your history, your culture, your context. And the piano, that instrument, that piece of furniture, if you will, provided a, both a symbolic and a very real connection with what they'd left behind. So it became the repository of, of enormous uh, connection, of of emotion, of story, of loves lost, passions remembered. It became a centre to their lives. And the piano in Siberia had, a, to me anyway, in the stories that I discovered, it had a different resonance somehow because of the sheer remoteness of its locale.
0: Were people more forgiving? or Were these pianos just like horrible pianos, so horribly out of tune? Or do you think in the day, a wealthy person, even in the depths of Siberia, would have the wherewithal to have a proper piano technician make the piano sound good so you could have in the middle of this vast cultural wasteland a great pianist playing great music. They're just like a beautiful shining light in the middle of the snowy tundra.
3: Uh, You described that beautifully and indeed um, that was and remains the case. The piano tuners were the keys to the kingdom for me both in history and in the present day. Back in the 19th century, the stories of them traveling all the way from Kiev to the borders of Mongolia to tune the pianos of wealthy merchants. Bit by bit, a homegrown industry started to evolve. There were piano-making factories in Siberia itself, The other thing I think is important to mention is this is in the Tsarist period when there was people of wealth who could afford with their great fortunes through silver mines and the rest to have pianos. In the Soviet period, and this is what I found very interesting, the piano was much more accessible. It was an everyday instrument. It wasn't a kind of instrument of the bourgeoisie, the concert hall and privilege as it is in the West, perhaps. It was available to, to many. So the levels of musical education, which you still feel in the Siberians that I was talking to, is very, very high. And the concert pianist, Denis Matsuev, said it to me right at the beginning. He says, don't underestimate Siberia. They're my most demanding audience. They they know exactly what oh. they're listening to. And that high level of musical education, I was, you know, you talk about it often, Rick, that sort of ethnocentricity is, is completely skewed. And you right. realize that you're approaching these things wrongly, perhaps.
0: You know, Sophie, one of my favorite memories of Warsaw, which is a Slavic country also, was going to an elegant uh, salon, a little uh, social room in a fancy house, and hearing one pianist playing to a, a small gathering of people that loved classical music. And it was such a beautiful, intimate moment as they were playing Chopin right there in the homeland of Chopin. And I can just imagine the salons and the beautiful little concerts with people that craved classical music all across Siberia, especially in the 19th century. This is Travel with Rick Steves. If you ever needed a reason to explore the far reaches of Siberia, Sophie Roberts went there on a mission to find the historic pianos that were given new homes in the most remote corners of Russia. She describes what she encountered over two years of travels in her book, The Lost Pianos of Siberia. Photos and videos from her journeys are featured on the website lostpianosofsiberia.com. Sophie, when you think of two years of exploring Siberia for these pianos, what are a couple of pianos that that really told a story to you? Uh, what, what, What were a couple of the examples of the amazing pianos with their own history that you found?
3: Well, there was one in the city of Akadem Gorodok, which is the science city outside of Novosibirsk. And with help from um, locals, I tracked down the last piano belonging to a lady called Vera Lota Shevchenko, who was a French pianist. Le Figaro described her as an absolute shining light of her time. She married a Russian and she, for one reason or another, ended up in the Gulag. She spent eight years in that Gulag and she used to practice on a wooden keyboard carved into the side of her bunk. On the day she was released, she walked out in her prisoner's peacoat and she knocked on the door of a music school and asked if she could play a piano. And it was an incredible moment. People stood at the door listening to this magnificent squall of Chopin, Bach and the rest, and she'd held that music in her head for eight years. Mm. And these academics in the city of Akademgorodok They found out about her story. They brought her in. She'd lost her husband in the gulag. He disappeared. And they brought her in and they they helped her with a piano. And she had a grand piano in her apartment until the day she died. And I tracked Mm. that down with the help of some wonderful Russians. This story, this was the whole thing about the hunt. It unraveled into something else. I then met her last tuner. Her last tuner survived the siege of Leningrad. He survived it, he said, by his own description, through music. He would listen to music on an old uh, record player, effectively, that his mother gave him. And music gave him solace. Music gave him hope. Music made him think it would be all okay. And that, if you like, hits at the core of why I found the whole hunt relevant to me. It told me what music can do
0: i grew up appreciating this my dad was a beloved piano tuner and i would we wouldn't even be talking now had he not decided to import great pianos from germany and Mm -hmm. i know how people appreciated bringing him into their house to give them what what he called the steve's sound of music you know and Mm -hmm. uh, people would trade in a, a miserable old little upright piano for a grand piano built with fine craftsmanship from germany And to think of the relief and the joy that brought people just here in Seattle, when you think about that in the middle of Siberia, when you think about that a century ago, it's just inspiring. And your book shines a light on that. And something your book also does is use this story of this love of music and this hunger for culture to talk about the humanity of a place like Siberia. You write about how you could knock on a door and say, do you have a piano here? And all of a sudden, You'd have a circle of friends. Talk a little bit about how your book, The Last Pianos of Siberia, is sort of a, a tool or, or an avenue to just explore the humanity of Siberia and on a broader sort of scale, how we're connected with people all over the world.
3: Yes, it's a important question because I am a traveler. I'm a I'm an addicted traveller and I didn't realise that Siberia was going to become so significant for me. But what happened as a Western traveller in Russia, I was approaching it full of stereotypes, full of assumptions, full of politics, but knocking on the doors in these remote places as a Western woman saying, have you got a piano? Everything fell away. It was peculiar, it was a bit odd, and the doors opened. And from that single question... I would spend two, three, four, five days with people that welcomed me in. So that allowed me to get into the the place, into the culture, into the food, into the drink, into the stories and playing with their children. You know, it allowed me access into that kind of granular level of a place that sometimes is hard to reach as a traveler. So yes, in many ways, looking for a piano was an excuse to understand a place, but I hope there's also another narrative that tells the history of of this territory and its relationship with music. So there's a few things going on, I admit that. But for me, it was definitely a passport somehow to being trusted and trusting others.
0: We're talking to Sophie Roberts, the author of The Lost Pianos of Siberia, from her home studio right now on Travel with Rick Steves. In the book, Sophie details her adventure searching for historic pianos that were shipped to Siberia from European Russia. Sophie also hosts a podcast on the art of travel called Gone to Timbuktu. A new series of her interviews is due to be released shortly. You can find a short video from Sophie's adventure in Siberia at sophieroberts.com. Sophie is spelled S-O-P-H-Y. You wrote that it's been suggested that when you hear the hush of silver birch trees and winter snow in the big, soft chords of Russian music... That's sort of what we're talking about, what we're searching for here. Is there a piece that brings back the best impressions of Siberia that you like to go to when you hear it?
3: Yes, there is a Mongolian piece written by a contemporary composer called Sharav called "Awakened Step. It was the piece I first heard my friend for whom I was looking for a piano, a Mongolian, a young Mongolian pianist. It was a piece I first heard her play on a Yamaha that wasn't quite up to scratch. It was one of the pieces that night in a recital in a tent on a, on a hillside in a, the middle of the Mongolian steppe that stayed with me, that and Bach, the passionata. There's so many, but when you hear the thundering horses on the steppe, that steppe transcends modern borders. It belongs to Mongolia, it belongs to Siberia. When you hear a piano, just a piano, no singing voice, no orchestra, nothing else, there's a sort of clarity that belongs to that icy landscape somehow. I, it's a hard one to describe, but it, every time it moved me, those two pieces of music.
0: And Sophie, there's the very human story of the Mongolian musician that needs a great piano that you got to know and cared for. Can you just explain how that sort of is is the, is the plot of your book. Talk about The Mongolian Musician and what happened.
3: Of course. I've been going to Mongolia for many years. It's somewhere where my family and I spend time. We made friends with a family that live about eight hours outside the capital, Ulaanbaatar, and they live in a remote valley. And this young Mongolian pianist was there in the summer of 2015. She was teaching piano to some of the local kids, And she was playing on a Yamaha that had seen better days. You know, it's a very brutal climate, Mongolia. You know, they talk about how uh, in winter it gets so cold that the cow's tails snap in too. So you can imagine what that does to a piano. Anyway, she was playing music. I was listening in a, a very small and intimate space in one of these Mongolian tents with felted sides, perfect acoustics. She was playing some bark. The music was going up with the smoke through the hole in the center up to a kind of starlit sky. I thought it was very moving. But my friend, who knows much more about music and sound than I, said, oh, goodness, no, it's not quite right. We must find her one of the lost pianos of Siberia. He's a German. uh, He knows his history. And what he was talking about was this extraordinary moment in Russia's history when they brought in the great makers from the German-speaking states and the piano mania took off in Russia. So there was a kind of a historical line that I could start to take while also looking for an instrument that was worthy of my friend's talent. So that was where the quest began, interestingly, in Mongolia. But of course, look at a map. It's very, very close to the border with Siberia.
0: That's right. Again, my dad was a piano tuner and he loved pianos and he appreciated the history of pianos. And I remember he had a book with all the serial numbers and all the piano makers. You could look at the serial number of a piano and go, oh, that was a Steinway from the 1920s. Those were the good years. Did you encounter that sort of, you know, here's an almanac of serial numbers and we can read into the story from the serial number of the piano uh, that was made by this or that company?
3: Yes, yes. So often it was amazing that it was like a detective hunt. I mean, of course, um, Russia's 20th century history is very disturbed. There's a lot of lost provenance and all the rest of it. But those serial numbers were, were really very important. And, you know, Steinway, for instance, keep very, very close record of it. Others lost records during the war. But I will never forget meeting a piano tuner in Kamchatka who was in his late 70s, and every piano he had ever tuned, he produced his notepad. It was written with the serial number. It was incredible, just this history of commitment. And, you know, the piano tuners are. I've seen them walk onto a stage in Carnegie Hall and you, you they never have a name. You never recognize their importance, but they're the, the kind of unsung hero to my mind. And they certainly are of my book. They are real heroes. They are working oh. away, protecting these instruments, um, holding onto their stories and making sure they don't all end up on a bonfire. And yes, it was important, those serial numbers. They were part of the treasure hunt, I guess.
0: Sophie, I didn't realize this conversation with you would, would lead to such emotions for me, but my father, all of his life, he was the piano tuner behind the scenes, and he would love these pianos. He would sign his business card, uh, you know, tuned by Richard Steves on this date to A440, and he would put it there, and then the musicians would run it over the goal line, and they would just love it. To think about that, amplified almost infinitely in that vast Siberian prison without a roof And to think of the importance of culture and the resilience of the human spirit and what we can learn from traveling, I'm so inspired. And I just think it must have been so exciting and gratifying for you to find this story and then to be able to write about it in your book, The Lost Pianos of Siberia. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing what you've learned. Thank you, Rick. Let's close today's Travel with Rick Steves by hearing Sophie's Mongolian pianist friend Adgaro play a nocturne written by John Field on the actual piano that Sophie found for her in Siberia. Travel with
2: Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Kaz hall and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. You can listen to a podcast version of the show whenever you like at ricksteves.com slash radio and for most podcast providers. We'll look for you again next week with another Travel with Rick Steves.
0: Rick Steves Classroom Europe is a fast, free, and fun video archive. It's designed for teachers, travelers, and students gives you immediate access to some 500 short video clips from the Rick Steves Europe TV show library. Clips cover European history, art, culture, food, and geography. Google Classroom Europe or visit ricksteves.com to watch clips and create your own playlist. Teachers love it. Students do, too.